Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 29th, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 1 to 18. Ezekiel speaks the Lord's word against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Pharaoh pridefully thinks that he is as great as Assyria. So the Lord tells Pharaoh that his downfall will be just as great as Assyria's. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be here as always. We're talking about Ezekiel 31 this morning, Pastor Agrotowitz. So as we get started, give us some background on the prophet and maybe this particular section of the book, these oracles against the nations, that'll help us into the text we've got for today. Yeah, sure. So Ezekiel, the dates for Ezekiel um, are around 593 to 570. And I think that's important because if it's 593 to 570, that means he would have started to serve right before and right after the fall, which is generally dated to be 587 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem. He calls himself a priest in the opening of Ezekiel, and the king that is used to mark the dating in the book is Jehoiakim, with an N on the end, and I say that because there's also to be a Jehoiakim with an M, we don't want to confuse with, uh, be confused with that guy. He calls himself amongst the exiles, so that's another important marker. So when we hear the word exile, we think about the Jerusalem, the people of uh, Jerusalem being exiled and brought out of their land. His book is apocalyptic literature in, in many places, at least. That's important for the reader to know when uh, he or she dives into Ezekiel because apocalyptic literature is a specific genre that's going to have some literary elements in there that it's, it's good to be aware of so we don't uh, make the mistake of misinterpreting something. Apocalyptic literature will typically have visions, uh, lots of allegory, metaphor, imagery, and symbolism. So when we're looking at these things, we can expect uh, visions, for example, that always transcend time and space. So you do have to be careful when you're dealing with visions not to try to cram or shoehorn them into the time and space parameters as we, as we know them. When it comes to symbolism, metaphor, and allegory, they can be powerful literary ways of communicating a message to us, um, but they are subject to misinterpretation if you ascribe meaning to an allegorical text that just really shouldn't be. And one good rule of thumb, a good baseline for approaching an allegorical text, is always compare it to other parts of Scripture. I mean, let Scripture interpret Scripture, and that would be very helpful when you look at a text like Ezekiel that is full of imagery and just some powerful symbolism the prophet employs in his writing to communicate this message, a message that really is of, of judgment. Uh, I, I took the time to read through the first 31 chapters of Ezekiel straight. It had been a while since I had done that. And if I had to reduce 
the first 30 chapters or so, I would say this is God speaking through his man, his prophet, a word of judgment to an impenitent, obstinate people who need to hear the message of repentance because judgment is coming, it's on the way, Jerusalem is not going to stand. And of course, we'll talk more about that in the text. But those are some, you know, some preliminary things I would say about you know, the man Ezekiel himself, God's man, appointed for this very important task, and just reading this great, fantastic book of Ezekiel, some things to be aware of when you when you dive into this apocalyptic uh, text, what to look for, how to interpret it. We want to keep our feet on the ground, because this book just has so much to tell us. It really does. And, and yeah, reading through the first 31 chapters, you, you don't quite get to the turning point in the book of Ezekiel, which comes in chapter 33, where the city of Jerusalem falls, that news reaches Ezekiel there in exile. And it's really from that moment on that he does turn to comfort the people a lot more. There's been glimpses here and there in these first 30, 31 chapters. But for for the most part, as you said, this is judgment against the people of God in Judah and also the people of the nations. And that's really where we've been these last several chapters, starting in chapter 25. You get seven different oracles against nations. And we've been now with Egypt for a couple of chapters, and we're not quite finished with Egypt, as we'll see. And one thing we've talked about, Pastor Agrado, it's through these oracles of the nations, that sometimes it's a pretty difficult type of literature to look at in the scripture and to apply to ourselves. You know, kind of up there with the book of Leviticus can be pretty difficult to do sometimes, and sometimes those genealogies can be difficult for us to take and apply. These oracles against the nations are, are often difficult to say, well, what do we do with this, with this historical information that's here about nations that aren't even God's own people in the Old Testament? So I'm just, to get your, your two cents on that as well, when you think about this type of literature particularly, this oracle against Egypt— how are we going to take something like this that's so grounded in history and, and make use of it as Christians still today? And there's plenty of ways to use it. Now, I said uh, Ezekiel is an apocalyptic text, and certainly there's a lot in it that is apocalyptic. But I, I don't want to overstate and say that's all it is, because there are other genres that you alluded to, like there, there are things in here that are historic. There are poetic elements in there as well. And when you read about these oracles against the nations, they also have a very poetic feel about them as well. And for us uh, modern readers who read very, very little poetry, uh, handling something like this is, is going to be all the more challenging because we're just not used to reading these poetic texts. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do our very best and maybe even start diving into some, some good poetry. Um, reading. I'm reading uh, Virgil's the, the Aeneid right now which is a very poetic book, and kind of challenging at first, but the more you read it, the more the poetic uh, flavor of the text becomes ingra ingrained in your mind. Um, also, the Iliad by Homer is another one that, again, has is, is a great poem that uh, we, we should know very well. And I think reading those texts help us to look at texts like this. Maybe that's kind of an aside, but I think something Christians should ponder. You know, read those genres that you do find in the Bible, like the... Um, the good, the, the good poetry uh, within. But using Scripture to interpret Scripture when you get to some of these things, again, is always helpful. And the imagery and stuff, it may take you a couple of times to read it before you understand it, but that's okay, too. Read, read, and reread. Compare other parts of Scripture to kind of get an idea of what is being said. And I think a reader can be uh, quite surprised how much he will learn. 
Also, too, it is helpful uh, to read the entire book mm-hmm. in preparing for this, as I mentioned earlier. I started one, and I at least wanted to make it all the way through 31. And I, I timed myself to see how long it would take me. And reading at a leisurely pace, I think about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, I had read 31 chapters. But that was helpful, too, because by the time you get to these oracles against the nations, you can see where things are going. You can see uh, what God is gearing up to do against them. So that's also very helpful, as opposed to just jumping into a text blind, I will say, just out of context. That can make it much harder, as opposed to reading it in its context. I think a, a reader would be surprised just how much you will know when you've got a good background coming into a chapter as to what, what God is doing and what's going to be uh, the, the outcome. Hmm. It is amazing just reading through a book straight like you're talking about, whether in one sitting, as you did, or you know over the course of several weeks, as we're doing here in Sharper Iron, how much you do pick up, and the way, particularly with Ezekiel, he, he does repeat himself often, and we're discovering that in these oracles against the nations. You, you pick up on those habits, and it does make learning and applying these texts that much easier when you're familiar with the author and the way that his style may permeate the book and his turns of phrases and things like that. And even in texts that are a little more difficult, you can still see those things, and it it does help our reading of Scripture. Any more introductory comments before we jump into chapter 31 this morning? Maybe one more comment, too. I think, you know, learning as a Christian reader, this is a a good topic we're on right now, learning to suffer with the text, (laughs) learning to embrace something that is hard, and even boring at first, uh, learning to memorize a verse here and there, and learning how to meditate in the biblical sense of the word, where we really take time to contemplate a word. Now, that does require focus. It requires patience, um, two things of which I do not always have a lot of, but it's a good discipline for Christians to, to exercise themselves in the reading of the text and to work at it, to work at it. That's what I tell students here. You have to work at things. You have to work. You have to practice those conjugations and paradigms in Latin. And there's a lot to be said about that for biblical reading. You know, we love a a nice meme on Facebook or the quick, witty Facebook post, and I like those things too. Um, But they're quick and to the point, and if that's all we're getting in our diet, then we're not going to be really used to engaging in these difficult texts like Ezekiel, and, and that's not good. Uh, even doing a lot of deep reading. I mean, we're in an age where just reading is not what it used to be. We just don't read deeply like we used to as a people, and that's also to our detriment. So uh, that might be some some good wisdom for the hearer of this program to chew on. I know I do my best to kind of practice these things as a sinful person. You know, I fail, I get distracted and whatnot, but I think we should work to to train ourselves to embrace the hard things, contemplate them, and uh, I think I think we would be all the more surprised when, after doing that, suddenly something makes sense, a light bulb goes off, and we get it. And boy, those are great. Those are great moments when we get them. And um, when we do get them, thanks to God, absolutely, for teaching us something that we didn't know. So we are in Ezekiel chapter 31 this morning. And with some of the things you've said, Pastor Gaudis, I think I'll go ahead and read the whole chapter all at once for us this morning, verses 1 to 18. And I do think that's going to help because within this oracle that is directed toward Pharaoh, we're going to be talking about Assyria. And so I think, you know, hearing the the Pharaoh, his mention at the beginning and the end, and then the middle, that's going to help us maybe tie all of it together. So we're going to read all of chapter 31 all in one fell swoop right now. 
In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as, as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death, to the world below, among the children of man, with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, On the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall, when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it, to those who are slain by the sword, yes, those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. That is Ezekiel chapter 31, the entire chapter, verses 1 to 18. So, Pastor Agrotowitz, maybe let's just think about this, this chapter as a whole. You mentioned we've got a good chunk of poetry here. One of the, the features of poetry, particularly biblical poetry, is its use of imagery. And the main image that comes through here is the image of a tree. So just help us with that image, the way that it's used here. Maybe other places in Scripture are going to shed some light on, on just that primary image that Ezekiel uses in this chapter. In 
ancient pagan religions, there was something to be said in the religions about a tree as that which, you know, encompasses the world. Um, it was an imago mundi, which just means image of the world, uh, really embodied by a tree in, again, pagan religions. So one way of looking at this would be his use of talking about a tree perhaps would have resonated with everybody, um, certainly biblical readers who know a thing or two about trees, but maybe even perhaps it could have applied to those those people of different pagan religions who had some um, mythical religious connection to a tree. But uh, if that's true or if it's not here, uh, meaning what I mean by that is whether or not Ezekiel is trying to, to take that angle, for the the... the the biblical reader, we know about trees, one, the tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, the tree of life also spoken of in the book of Revelation. Uh, just trees in general are, are beautiful to look at. And so, um, you know, whether or not that, that um, mythical religious component is, is, you know, actively employed here by Ezekiel, we know about trees. And the, the, the cedar tree is, is a great tree. You know, I, I do woodworking on the side, so, you know, I can sit here and extol the benefits of, of even cedar. But it is a good image when you're thinking about life, what trees provide us in wood and what we can eat, what they provide for animals that come there, what they need to live. There's just so many components to God's creation of a tree that it's easy to be used in a text like this to impress upon us a point when here, you know, of course, he's comparing it to a nation. Um also, we're talking about this tree here in Ezekiel 31. Jesus talks about a tree, but I think I'm going to hold off on that, because I think maybe we'll get that to that point when the Lord describes a tree and branches in Matthew chapter 12. But I'm going to let that kind of dangle out there. That's a point that, like I said, we can get to in a little bit. Um, but here in this poetic text, I think there's plenty of us to, uh, to chew on when he's describing a Syria and the cedar tree. And, and what that what that teaches us um, as we read it. We've seen Ezekiel pick up the image of a tree, and maybe in a slightly different way, but back in chapter 17, you had that parable or an allegory, a riddle, it's called there in Ezekiel 17, of these two great eagles and plucking off the top of a cedar, and then later the Lord says, I'm going to take part of a cedar and plant it. So again, you have this, this thought of the tree image previously in Ezekiel, comes up here in a slightly different context. As you said, it's used to describe the greatness of Assyria. Now, and again, I think this is, it took me a couple of reads through this chapter to kind of wrap my head around it. This chapter is directed at Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And, and that's made plain at the beginning in verse 2, and then again at the end in verse 18. But in the middle, it's talking about Assyria and its greatness and correct me if I'm wrong, but again, I'm just trying to make sure we have the, the right picture in our minds here. What's being said is, Pharaoh, you think you're so great like Assyria, so, well, let's see what actually happened to Assyria. That's what's going to happen to you. Is that the overall gist of this chapter? Sure. It's you know directed at Pharaoh. That is clear, and the text makes that clear. But the, the Lord does spend a lot of time describing Assyria. And there, there's more than one reason for that. One, Assyria was a great, powerful, mighty war machine. I mean, she decimates and takes out the northern kingdom, and you know she's on the verge of coming and taking over the south of Israel, but doesn't do that. 
um, and, and that's recorded in Isaiah. So when we see her in her prime, I mean, she is certainly a force to be reckoned with. And according to a commentary that I read, her reign extends uh, for centuries, much longer than that of, of Babylon, which really on the historic timeline, Babylon's reign as the world superpower really is, is a flash in the pan compared to Assyria. So if you're going to compare longevity, certainly Assyria um, Assyria takes the cake, uh, even though she falls to her rival, which will be Babylon. That's the comparison here. And, and Pharaoh, Egypt is getting a lesson. As you pointed out, you think you're very great and powerful. Well, you're not the only nation that rose to prominence, power, and prestige. Remember Assyria. And of course, how could they forget being that close to such a powerful nation? Assyria is exemplified, and as we get through this text, we see what happens. Right, so Assyria, and and what's, I guess, interesting about this is because Assyria hasn't really factored into the book of Ezekiel all that much, because where Ezekiel is, both in, in history and geographically, Assyria at, at this point, I think you, you gave us his dates earlier from 593 to about 570 BC, by that time Assyria is is not a factor in world world power at all. Babylon has replaced them. As you said, it's a short time, but but Assyria is gone. Assyria comes before Ezekiel, and so it's it's been a while. I, I had to do a little bit of refreshing on some of what happened under Assyria, because it's been a while since I've looked at that, because we're under Babylonian conquest right now. And so it's, I think, but I do think Assyria being the most recent world power, major world power, as you said, but they've met their end at Babylon's hands at this point. That is going to serve as a a pretty sharp reminder for Pharaoh and for Egypt that that same ruthless nation, as they've been called, is now going to come for them. And just like Assyria met its downfall at their hands, so Egypt will do likewise in, in this time. Now, so with that, so we're going to talk a lot about Assyria here. The first part of this chapter is, and it's it's arranged poetically in the way that ESV arranges the text in verses 2 through 9. It's describing this beautiful cedar tree and the way that it was just taken care of and was the most wonderful of all the trees. What are some of the features there of how Assyria is described as this cedar in Lebanon in this first part of the chapter. Well, in research for this interview, I did read that a cedar in Lebanon was a coveted tree. So maybe we don't care that much about cedar, but to them, that would have been a big deal, historically speaking. But whether or not we know that point, we can hear plenty of other descriptors about this tree. It's beautiful, it's tall, it's nourished. uh, birds of the heavens come to make its nest and its boughs, and, and its branches extend to cover even the beasts of the field. So we see animals coming to this tree and receiving shelter, protection, and so forth. It's beautiful in its greatness, and it's talked about as if it is the tree of trees. Verse 8 even says the cedars in the garden of God. They, we hear garden and we think Eden, and Eden's going to be mentioned later anyway. The cedars in the garden of God cannot rival it nor the fir trees equal its boughs. So the point right there is to express just how great this tree is. There's none like it. There's none like it. Assyria in its prime, there's nothing like it. It's the most powerful nation um, the world is dealing with when she is on the world stage. Um, 
there was nothing equal to its beauty. We hear that as well. So plenty of descriptors, I think, you know, any, any Christian reading, reader can pick up on. But verse 9 is also critical, too, because God goes through describing how great, how powerful, how wonderful this tree is, a standout tree. You know, those trees that you just you, you walk by and they kind of catch your eye, and they're like, oh, that's an interesting tree. Um, it, it, it's something like that, only so much, so much more in how it's described. But then verse 9, this is God speaking, I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. But God is the one who made it what it is. And that's very important because we know, we know from whom this tree became what it did, lest the tree, the people of uh, uh, Assyria, but Egypt as well, really any superpower, lest any of them think their greatness is from their own doing. And we'll talk about more a little bit on the pride section uh, beginning at verse 10. But here in verse 9, we're being set up that, hey, this tree is just uh, the tallest of the tall, the greatest of the great, and it's even providing for others. And that would be the main point, I would argue, in verse 9, just trying to really stick in our minds just how great and and glorious this tree is. I'm, I'm searching for adjectives to describe it, um, but the best advice would be, hey, read the text and you'll you'll understand. That's right. Yeah, the the way the text describes this tree is I mean, it it Ezekiel doesn't use the adjectives. He he talks about, you know, the trees in the garden of God, which is quite I mean that that's saying something when you you know you picture that scene in Genesis 1 and 2 of all these trees that are there from which Adam and Eve are are able to eat and and you think about just how glorious of a setting that really was for Ezekiel to preach here the word of the Lord that Assyria as a tree would have been more glorious than that, more beautiful than that, is just a marvelous picture and, and one that adjectives probably aren't there to really describe well. And, and that's the reason Ezekiel uses the language that he does. I wanna I wanna come back more to that thought that God is the one who's responsible for Assyria's beauty, but we really need to take our break. So we'll go ahead and do that. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 31 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 29th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. He's associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 9 and how the Lord, in concluding his description of Assyria and what a wonderful tree it is, he states, I made it beautiful. So all this beauty that belongs to Assyria that was the Lord's doing, which maybe surprises us as Christian readers that the Lord would do this 
for this pagan nation, Assyria, whom we know, and, and we'll see how they met their downfall because of this pride. But I mean, what what's the Lord doing doing this for Assyria? What are we to make of that? Well, we can comment on that because we know we know the biblical story. We know what God's word says on this. So Assyria, for example, is God's instrument that He uses to take down Samaria when He brings that army in and just takes over in the northern kingdom of, of um, Samaria in 722 B.C. I think I have that date right. So he's an instrument of God, right? He's used by God to punish impenitent people. And again, we only know that because the Word of God says so. Um, and when he is done with that instrument, he will also punish that people according to their sin. So while he does use them, they're not off the hook to believing and trusting in Yahweh, um, but rather they will receive punishment for their stubbornness and their rebellion and, you know, perhaps that might be a little challenging for us to wrap our reason around that, that God would use them and then also punish them for their sin. But I think that's pretty clear in the biblical text. In terms of today, nations rise, nations fall. We can't dismiss, of course, that God is behind that as well, trying to predict, though, why, you know, one nation may be powerful at this one moment. Um, we, we don't want to venture into areas that God has not spoken in His biblical in His biblical uh, in the biblical text that He has given to us. But we can know that you know behind the scenes, God is always at work. He always you know He has a plan to use an overused phrase, but still a true one. He knows what's going on, and He He will use them for His purposes. And sometimes we don't find out till after the fact. Here regarding Assyria, we do know because the Word tells us. And with that, with Assyria, another another place that we can look for Assyria is in Isaiah chapter ten, where where the the Lord there through the prophet Isaiah calls Assyria the rod of his anger that he's going to send against a godless nation. So you see the Lord's purpose in Assyria, but you also see in that chapter that Assyria kind of gets too big for their own britches, that that they don't have the same intentions that the Lord has. The Lord has the intention of punishing a godless nation, and Assyria has a bigger intention for themselves. And that comes through in Ezekiel 31 as well. In verse 10, when the, the text now transitions from this beautiful tree, and that image stays, but now from what God had done for this nation of Assyria, now because of their misuse, they're going to receive judgment. And and it starts with, and Ezekiel identifies this for us right away there in verse 10, because it, this tree, towered high and set its top among the clouds, and I think this is the key phrase, its heart was proud of its height. The, the main sin of Assyria that's identified is pride. Take us into that verse, Pastor Agradowitz. Sure. Well, pride is at the heart, and to get a description of that pride, I'm glad that you brought up Assyria because, excuse me, well, Assyria, yes, but Isaiah, what I meant to say. In Isaiah 36, you really get some, some juicy details regarding the pride of Assyria, because they are mocking Israel, who is the God that you trust in, and these people when you hear Assyria brag and boast, I mean, she believes that she is so godlike in how she acts and what she has done and what she can do. She mocks the God of Israel, and that's all right there in 36. Uh, he, I mean, there's all sorts of great verses here. A couple to point out. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. So trust in Egypt is not going to help, as, of course, Israel will find out. Um, he also says, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. So 
these people have no fear of God whatsoever, and even attack the theology of Israel, this belief in the one true God. So it is just mockery, I mean, to the hilt of the sword, pride rising to the heavens in this nation of Syria, that really believes she cannot be touchable, even by the one true God, whom, as I stated, they mock and really have no use for, and even want the people of Israel to believe, hey, he is not going to save you. It's nothing short of demonic, all pouring out of this pride and arrogance, because, you know, she believes she is the tree that cannot fall. So powerful, with roots so deep, branches so big, what's going to happen to me? I'm providing even shelter for the beast, for the birds that can come in my branches, and their arrogance will blind them, and uh, pride goes before the fall, the scriptures say, and Assyria is no exception. So pride goes before the fall. That's what's going to happen to Assyria. What? How does the Lord begin to describe the fall of Assyria in verse 11? Sure. Well, I'll just I'll read it. I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. So there is that theme of getting punishment for what you've done. Now, the mighty one of the nations... We don't have to look long and hard to know who that mighty one is. That's going to be Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian war machine that's going to come take the place. So there again, God is raising up another nation to do his bidding. Assyria, she has ran her course. She'll be punished, struck and down. Again, Isaiah talks about her demise there in chapters 36 and 37. And then uh, Babylon will come take her place after her fall at uh, Israel by God at Samaria. By God's hand, um, Babylon will rise up, and Assyria will be no match for him. So he uses, you know, the short answer, he uses another nation to push her out of the way, and then it's going to be Babylon's turn uh, to, be, to be the tool that God uses to, um, to, to punish, but, but also through such punishment, hopefully bring his people to repentance. Hmm. Right, so we have the Lord again making use of Babylon, and that's a, a key theme that runs throughout this oracle against Egypt and around all these oracles of against the nations, that the Lord is the one directing these events. And so, I mean, again, to, to think about the context of Ezekiel 31, the word to Pharaoh is, remember what happened at, at the, the Battle of Carchemish, which is where in 605 BC, Babylon finished off Assyria for good. It, it's as if the Lord wants Pharaoh now to know, remember what, what happened there? That wasn't just a historical accident, that it just so happened that Babylon was more powerful than Assyria. The Lord tells Pharaoh, I was behind that. And and similarly, now the Lord is saying to Pharaoh, I'm going to be behind Babylon coming against you as well. It's a, I mean, again, it, we need to be careful as to how we, we think about this in our own world today and not speak where the scriptures haven't. But it is a powerful reminder how the Lord is directing the events of history all for his purposes. And maybe now is a good time to say those purposes ultimately are for the salvation of, of his people. I think we need to keep that in mind always in the background of chapters like these. Mm -hmm, sure, yeah. It's for his people. It's, it's an example. It's an example as well for us that when we see these nations, we see these nations fall, a reminder that, that um, you know, we, we shouldn't think of ourselves as, as too big to fail, right? We shouldn't think of ourselves as just so powerful and having everything together that it cannot collapse, because, of course, it can. This is one reason, amongst many, to know history, to look in history and see the rise of nations and see the fall of nations. 
uh, one nation, I mean, amongst many, would be the collapse of Rome. I mean, it was it was so great. It gave us many things that we we have in our own um, our own culture, things that we have received from them. And I'm thinking there in terms of, of the classical education and all that that entails. But they still fell. They still fell. And that's good for us to bear in mind. I mean, Germany was great for a little while in World War II. She was a mighty war machine, but she fell. Um, and, and many other nations make the list. Egypt was a powerful nation, a world superpower at one time in history, but she falls. So those reminders, those lessons are ones that, that, that we can't and shouldn't forget. And, and, you know, hence the reason to go through a book like Ezekiel, really the Old Testament. I mean, my goodness, we should, as a pastor, I'm feeling, I'm feeling convicted here for not <laughs> encouraging my people the congregation to read the Old Testament because you see history before you, really the, the history of the church, the history of humanity, and humanity's sins that get in the way when we arrogate ourselves, wanting to be like God, we act like God, our eyes get closed, our ears don't want to hear, our hearts get hardened, and we refuse to hear what he is saying. And when the fall comes, great is the fall, and you know, people see it, and it's 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 embarrassing, but it is the outcome of of this rank stubbornness when we refuse to heed what our Lord is telling us, thinking we can forge our own path. Um, you know, as we've seen in history, it can take the rod that is another nation, you know, coming down hard on our backs before we wake up and say, you know what, <laughs> we've made some mistakes, we have sinned before our God. Now is the time. Now is the time for repentance. Yeah, the, and the rod certainly comes down very hard on the back of Assyria in this text. That image of the tree continues forward here, but now instead of the, the tree standing tall and growing mighty, envied by the greatest trees that you can think of in the garden of God, now that once mighty tree, if, if I could, I'm trying to picture this in my mind, it, it sounds like it's, it's just being stripped of all its branches and, and cut and strewn all over the place in just full display by these foreign nations and then in front of all these foreign nations to see. Take us take us in t- deeper into that picture that Ezekiel paints of the destruction of this tree that was Assyria. Yeah, it becomes a dead carcass on the ground. It it falls, it's broken in all the ravines of the land. And you know, the the birds are now on its branches that are on the ground. Um we hear that in verse 13, but here's another interesting verse too. We well, we have this image of a of a tree, it's fallen on the ground, it's broken, smashed a bit. So obviously it was not it was not too big to fall, but all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. So in the metaphor of a tree, Ezekiel does record people leaving it. So this once great nation that people benefited from did commerce with, and all these sorts of things, now they're leaving it desolate because it's no longer providing for them. So the people have gone. It's useless, worthless, on the ground. I mean, just think of a dead tree that you see that's so rotten and so uh, broken down in pieces. You really just don't want anything to do with it. That is this tree right here, which is a stark difference from the opening of this chapter that describes it like no other tree even those in the Garden of Eden. Mm. Uh, let, let's hold on to that thought of this once proud tree being stripped of everything, such that people realize that 
everything that Assyria offered really couldn't measure up. They couldn't provide what was needed in the end. Because I think you mentioned this earlier, there's a tree that Jesus is going to talk about that's going to give these things. And so I want to hold on to that that thought. We'll we'll bring it up toward the end as we we see how the Lord takes this image and turns it in a in a gospel way in in the gospel of Matthew. So but let's let's stick here in Ezekiel with the image of the tree being destroyed. There's another a, a pretty important marker in verse 15. Thus says the Lord God. Ezekiel loves that that phrase, and, and he talks uses it regularly. What's the importance of that marker? And then what does the Lord have to say in verse 15? Right. Thus says the Lord God always should get our attention. Another reminder, God is always speaking in the Bible, but those those markers really need to get our attention. What is God saying us saying to us? And on the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning, is what he says. So there's weeping you know, because going back to that idea of the people benefiting from the nation, well, now they can't do that. Birds having to build nests on its branches on the ground, that's not helpful because a nest on the ground is going to fall prey to predators. There's no shade now. There's no real protection. So there is a lot of loss when these mighty nations that we're benefiting from uh, collapse. Uh, and I mean, they can't do trade anymore, and, and it's the, the list goes on. Uh, God will say, you know, I, you, hear, you hear the pronoun I. Uh, a lot. Of course, God is doing these things, and so that's when the pronoun, um, it's always worth our attention, of course, but whenever God is using it to describe himself, you know, we, we know very clearly who is the subject doing the actions of the verb. He causes mourning, he closed the deep, he restrains its rivers, the waters are stopped, and it says, I clothed Lebanon, Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. And then verse 16, I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall. And I touched upon this earlier, the other nations quake. Well, they have seen what has happened. Assyria is fallen. Again, the, the, the lesson to take from that, I mean, we don't take it, but we should. You are not too big to fall. Your nation is not too powerful to collapse. Um, when we see nations fall and collapse, that should get our attention that the very nation, state, country, people that you might have thought would never fall, now they have done it. it. happens here to Assyria and the nations, they quake because of it. And in this metaphor, when we're hearing about trees, trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, these are people. These are people Ezekiel was talking about, the ones, the princes, the kings, the arrogant of the land, those who, who really think that um, in their powerful positions, nothing can touch them, and yet that's, that's not the case. They all go down to the pit. They all go down to the grave. That's another point in this text. However great somebody thinks that they are, death is going to get them. We all join the democracy of the dead. We all breathe our last and are heading for the grave, um, lest we think we're going to live forever or that we have always time on our side and things are going to go as planned and we can just, you know, repent later or take our religion seriously later or we'll, we'll go to church next month or maybe next year. It's just right now it's too busy. Those kinds of thoughts pouring out of pride um, need to be dashed to bits. They need to lie fallen on the ground with the uh, the great tree of Assyria, because those thoughts are dangerous, hazardous when we think. We have time on our side. 
death is always down the road. That's just not the case because the choice of Lebanon, the trees of Eden, all these descriptors of great people show us they go down to the pit as we go down to the pit. And therefore, again, you know, I'll use this word again, it is time to repent always and seek the eternal things that don't rot, don't decay, don't break, don't collapse. And uh, that's where our heart should be. That's where our mind should be. And, you know, that's, that's you know, veering into the gospel side. I don't know if you quite want to uh, to go there yet, or if there's more here we want to uh, we want to chew on. Well, there, there's one, one piece that I want to chew on, and I think it's related to what you were talking about, the, this fact that Ezekiel brings out, that no matter who you are, you know, Egypt, Lebanon, all these different trees that are talking about people, no matter who you are, you're going to die. Is, is that what's behind this thought about being comforted in the world below? It's, it's at the end of verse 16. It's a strange turn of phrase here in Ezekiel. That, that's one more. I, I, I want to chew on that a little bit. What does that mean? Yeah, well, okay, well, that's the million-dollar question. And I, I'll, I'll give—I <laughs> read two commentaries on it. I looked at the Hebrew, and I'm still kind of uh, uh, scratching my head a little bit. But but let me let me give it a shot. And again, I, I want to make it clear for the uh, the reader and the hearer that this is not dogma coming out of my mouth. But these are some things I think we can at least think about. The Hebrew word is nacham. Now it's a pretty popular word, and it can be, in my opinion, it's a it's a complex word, and it can it can mean to be comforted, to be soothed. And when I looked at it in the lexicon, that was that was the the primary. Um, the primary uh, definition of it, this idea of being comforted, but it can also mean to um, to be quieted and even to find relief. And so, when it it does, you know, mention here about being comforted in the world below, it's almost like saying the other powerful, prideful people only find comfort when someone else more powerful than them falls. And maybe that's what Ezekiel is saying. They're finding comfort in all the right things. You know, pride is always in competition. So as great and as powerful as Assyria is, rest assured, there are other people, other great people who want to take her place, even if they're benefiting from her existence. And so the real comforted, uh, the comforted nature of the, the, um, the trees of Eden and the choice and best of Lebanon is when finally Assyria falls, they find some peace and relief in that, which ironically is no comfort and peace at all. So that might be one way of looking at at verse 16, um, but it, it, it's a tough verse that I'm still thinking about. But right now, those are kind of the thoughts that are going through my mind. That's I think that makes the most sense in this context. The comfort there that's described in verse 16, I, I don't think is intended to be the Christian sort of comfort that you and I have from knowing who Christ is as the one who's taken the punishment upon himself for our sake so that we don't suffer death and hell, but we have eternity with him. I don't think it's that kind of comfort, but it, it does sound to me uh, along the same lines that you're describing, this comfort of, you know, well, at least at least he got his, like I thought he should have, and I got mine, and so uh, there's that sort of uh, comfort, I'm not sure what English word to use, but it's it's not that fullness of a Christian comfort, but it's just a, well, at least, at least, what, misery loves company, that kind of idea. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a solace in knowing that, well, if I have to be miserable, at least he is being miserable because he definitely deserved it. That That's the kind of, that, that's the best that I can make of it too. So I, I, I think that's helpful, Pastor Agrotowitz. So with, with that, I do think this is a good place to to make the turn toward the gospel, which again in this context is not 
explicit from Ezekiel. There, there's really not any terribly good news for Pharaoh, for Egypt, within this chapter. But the images that are brought up for the Christian reader, there are those handles where I think we can find a, a way to, to see how Ezekiel is getting people ready for the gospel. And one of those, and you've brought this up, is the matter of the tree, and a tree that Jesus describes in the gospel. So go ahead and take us there, Pastor Grotowitz. Sure, right. So in verse 17, there's this phrase, um, those who, uh, the ones who go down to Sheol are those who lived under its shadow among the nations. Living in the shadow among the nations. Now, for the Christian, we live in the shadow of his wings, the shadow of God's. Our life and our existence should not come from the prosperity of a nation. If that's the case, we are people to be pitied, because nations, as we have clearly seen today, they fall. But the Lord Jesus, yes, he does talk about a tree, um, well, in more than one place in, in the Gospel lesson, when he talks about a tree being known by its fruit. But he also talks about a tree that is the kingdom of heaven, that when the kingdom of heaven um, you know, starts as a seed, it grows and it blossoms, and the birds of the air come and they make, they make their nest in, those tree, in that tree. Now, there we're talking about a tree, and this would be in Matthew uh, 13. Yeah, that's the reference. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. And let, let, me just, let me just read it. It's a short parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That came to my mind when I was reading this text in 31. Um, you, you, know, you know, sometimes in Holy Writ, you'll see these Old Testament phrases that remind you of something in the New Testament. And I always like it when that happens. And that's another reason to you know, stay, stay in your, your Bibles throughout uh, Genesis through Revelation. But that is a tree, the tree that God is giving, the tree that, that God has provided, the tree that is the kingdom of heaven, that one's not going to fall. And we can, we can make our nest in that tree and be just fine. We can find shelter under that tree and be perfectly fine, because that is the tree, the tree of God, so to speak, his kingdom that he has established for his people, that we know has no end. And that's, that's spoken of abundantly in Holy Writ. So there is a nice juxtaposition I think we should make between the tree that is a nation and the tree that is the kingdom of God. And there's, there's, there's wonderful preaching fodder here for our fires, because you know, how often do we get so tied up in the places where we live? Or we get jittery when the economy begins to go down, or um, it, you know, the, the unemployment rate rises, or the taxes increase, and these sorts of things. And, and these are all issues to be concerned about, even as a Christian, to be sure. But our life, our existence, our well-being is not tied up in this world. And that's a refrain from every, for every pastor, because our sinful flesh keeps going back to the world, or thinking we're going to have security when the economy is doing well, or the stock market is up, or if that right tax bill passes, and these sorts of things where you know, the Bible makes it very clear. These nations, as powerful as we think they are, they are not immune to collapsing and dying, and we don't want to be people so tied up into them that when 
those trees fall, they fall on top of us and crush us. Much better is the tree that is the kingdom of heaven. Um, much better is a heart and mind that is seeking the heavenly things that God gives, that our faith, that our faith is in the right place. This is the simple point. Where is your faith? Is it in a, a, a temporal earthly nation, or is it in your God who has given you a kingdom that is sure and certain and not even hell will prevail against it? That's fantastic preaching there, Pastor Agrotowitz. As we wrap up this morning, we've got about two minutes left. Help us to, again, see what's happening here in Ezekiel 31, and again, use it to point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. Well, we see God's justice going forth, and I think that's an important theme for Christians today who, you know, it, it's not too hard to look around and think that maybe justice isn't going forth, that all the evil nations of the world are just having their way, governments passing laws and edicts and decrees, however they think, and God is doing nothing about it. We know that's not true. God always, he has a plan, as I mentioned earlier, and these nations are always on a short leash. Whenever he speaks, his word will not return void. And we see that with Egypt, we see it with Assyria, We'll eventually see it with Babylon. I mean, the list goes on that these nations, they rise and they fall when he says they do. And I think there is comfort in that for uh, the Christian who is, is again, you know, pondering this, this doctrine of justice and God executing it when he, when he sees fit. Well, he does. So uh, be patient. Trust in your God, even when it looks like the nation is on top. We know how that turns out. But, of course, when it comes to true comfort, our comfort is always in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom we want to be in. That's the tree where we want our nest. That's the tree under which we want to be in that shadow, the shadow of God. And so when we juxtapose the two, hopefully by the grace of God, we can see the better deal. We can see the thing that lasts, the thing that doesn't. We can see what Christ has done for us, going upon that tree that is the cross, dying on that tree, shedding blood on that tree to pay for our sins, that we would live, even as the world teeters and totters, we don't, because the Church doesn't, because Christ doesn't. And that's the point that we need to take home. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Have a blessed Reformation celebration this weekend. Talk to you again next week.